Thank you, Johnson. <laughs> Morning, everybody. I am Devin. I am one of the pastors here at High Point, and I am thrilled to be able to stand here before you today. Some of you have only seen me speak as a giant disembodied head up there on the screen. Some of you who were at the leaders' retreat this last week had an opportunity to hear me speak in person, and I was more than honored to be able to share the word with all of you there. Um, and I want to take a quick moment at the very beginning to say thank you for the incredibly warm welcome that all of you have extended to me and to my family. It has really meant the world. And one of the warmest things that all of you did without even realizing it is that the person who oversaw small groups before I came to High Point is just absolutely outstanding. Uh, for those of you who don't know Erin, do yourselves a favor and get to know her. And for those of you who do know Erin, be thankful that she is remaining here on staff and that she'll be working so closely with Nick. Uh, looking in from the outside, moving from a role directing a major ministry to becoming like the, the personal assistant almost to the senior pastor could look like a demotion. I want to stress with all the clarity I can muster that that is not what this is. That uh, this is a role that Aaron sought out, that uh, everybody kind of felt like she was massively overqualified for it, but when we saw the opportunity for her to kind of continue and extend her ministry with a slightly greater emphasis on like, speaking into the vision and direction of the church, it just made so much sense. So well, you join me in, uh, in thanking Erin for everything she's done for High Point for the Small Groups Ministry. Let's all pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you sent Jesus to be our teacher and our guide. And, our guide. and I thank you that he continues to teach us today. I thank you for the gift of your word that makes us wise, shows us where we should set our feet. I pray today that you would grant me the boldness that you granted to the apostles on the day of Pentecost, that I would speak your truth. And I pray also that you would make our hearts receptive to your word so that when the seed of the word goes forth, it would find good soil in us and that we also would bear much fruit, which is the seed of your word bearing fruit in us. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We begin by reading from Acts chapter 6. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. 
So for those of you who have been with High Point for the last couple months will know that we're approaching the end of a series on some vital, quote, unbrandable Christian truths. And I don't know if anybody else has been benefiting as much from that series as I have, but if I could boil down everything that's happened over the last month to one basic idea, I think it's this. And it's that God never waters down his identity or his truth in order to accommodate us and our tastes. But at the same time, he doesn't just leave us incompatible with him and with his ways and with his nature. He expands us. He renews our tastes and desires so that we come to appreciate God and God's ways for who he is and for what they are. So today, we're going to ask God to expand our tastes and our desires so that we appreciate and love his local church for what it is. And whatever else the local church is, it is a community, and it may help to begin by contrasting the nature of the local church with the communities that we all belong to, whether we think about them or not. And I want to submit to you that there are basically two kinds of communities that we all belong to. There are the communities that choose us, and there are the communities that we choose. The first kind, you could call it involuntary communities, are communities like family or country. I am a member of my family, not because of anything that I did, but because of the choices that my parents made and continued to make. My children, Isla and Brian, are dual citizens, both of the United States and of Australia. Again, for no reason other than the fact that legislators in America and Australia decided to grant the rights and the privileges that come with citizenship to them. On the other hand, the involuntary communities, these are the communities that often take up more of our attention because they're the ones that are trying to sell themselves to us, to get us to choose them. So think about colleges, think about gyms. They had to convince me, my college where I attended undergraduate, for my undergraduate degree and my gym had to convince me that they were the best place for me to join, to join with them, and also ultimately to give them my time and money. And the trick to these communities, the way that they often hook us and sell themselves to us is they really offer to sell us better versions of ourselves. And this is what I mean. They're trying to sell what you could call self-actualization, like the, the fullest human potential that's within you. They say, we are the way to unlock it. I was at dinner the other day with two very dear friends, and there was a television on in the background. And at one point, one of my good friends, he went quiet for a moment, and he looked over his shoulder, and he wasn't looking for the score of the, of the World Series. He was looking at the ad. And after it ended, he looked back at me and said, the Marines have really good ads. So think about it, why do we choose the communities that we choose? Why do the Marines and other branches of the military, think Army, spend millions and millions and millions of dollars to convince us that we should belong to their community? Well, they do it because they need us, but they need to convince us that we need them also. So think Army, be all that you can be. The message is clear. You lackluster in some way, come see us, we'll shape you up. We'll turn you into who you were meant to be. Some of you have served in uniform. Others of us, like myself, have not. But I'll go back to the example of colleges and gyms. I didn't go to college because I was satisfied with what I already knew or totally comfortable with my future economic prospects. I didn't join a gym because one day I looked in the mirror and said, 
yep, I've achieved peak perfection. I am never going to get better than this. But here's the thing. This is, this, this is the assumption that's hiding underneath all of the marketing for these, these chosen communities, all the marketing that we're subjected to day after day after day after day, is that it only really works, those are only really appealing ads if we have our very most fundamental and basic needs already met. I don't spend money on college. I don't risk crippling debt that could hamstring me for the rest of my life if I can't aff already afford rent. I don't join a gym if I'm working 80 hours a week just to cover the cost of groceries and medical bills. So here's the tension with these communities that we choose. Everybody sort of wants what they have, but these days many of them have become luxury goods. And that means that many of those special communities can just ignore a large swath of the population. And that's just good marketing logic. Because why, if you are the leader of one of these communities, would you spend the money and invest the resources that it takes to sell your product to people who can't afford it? And that, I suggest, that tension is what brings us to Acts chapter 6. If we've been in the church for any length of time, we recognize in Acts chapter 6 that this passage describes the founding of one of the basic ministries of the church, the diaconate. These are the folks throughout our congregation, many of you here today, who are especially dedicated to meeting the basic physical and financial needs of other members of the community. So, since you've recognized the presence of deacons here, I now need to go a step farther and charge you to be aware of the temptation to resist, or to resist the temptation that would tell you that this passage is only about deacons and has very little to tell you. In fact, I think that you could pretty much map yourself into the position of every character from Acts chapter 6 and learn something beneficial from it. So let's run through a bit of the narrative. In Acts chapter 6, the Jerusalem church is facing a problem. And it's a great problem, but it's one that has some super tough consequences. The apostles are living through every church planter's dream. They've started a church, it's growing leaps and bounds, it's bursting at the seams. But because the church has become so large, some of its core ministries are starting to wobble and break down. And even more problematically, this breakdown is occurring along cultural and ethnic lines. So, for example, if you were a Jewish woman, you grew up in Jerusalem or somewhere nearby, and then, as often happened, because at that time, young Jewish women typically married men who were much older than them, let's say your husband dies, what happens next? Well, you're a native Jerusalem. You're a native of Jerusalem, and you know who to go to talk to to get the food that your husband otherwise would have provided. You speak Aramaic. You know how to navigate the streets. On the other hand, if you were a Jew, or even worse, a Gentile convert to Judaism, who now belongs to the Jerusalem church, but grew up somewhere else, let's say like way far in the north in what's modern-day Turkey, and then your husband dies, and you're in Jerusalem. What do you do then? You grew up speaking Greek. You don't know how to navigate the city. But you are a member of the church. And the church is supposed to be doling out food every day to help those in need. And you're in need, but suddenly you start going hungry. Well, over time, this problem makes its way up the chain of command of the apostles. What are they going to do? For the apostles, the solution comes immediately, and it seems like a pretty simple one. They decide that if 12 men like them, even men who have been trained by Jesus, can't do all the work of the ministry, then more people need to do the work of the ministry. 
And the apostles' recruitment process here is really, really telling. They call all the disciples together. They call a congregational meeting. They charge the whole community with responsibility for fixing the problem. And it takes incredible humility in a leader to tackle a problem like this. Because Peter, James, and John don't just walk through the community, go to the people that they already like, tap them on the shoulder, and then elevate them to positions of prominence. Instead, they ask the entire community as a whole to look around them and discern where they see the Spirit at work. And from there, and only then, do they settle on a basic division of labor. The apostles are going to dedicate themselves to the proclamation of the Word of God and to prayer. And make no mistake, the apostles are not just setting themselves away from the community, spiritualizing themselves, and giving themselves the easy task. There's a reason why one of the primary metaphors for Scripture within Scripture is food. If you were to look at a passage like Amos chapter 11, and I'll begin in reading in verse, uh, sorry, Amos 8, verse 11, this passage describes what happens to human beings when they lose access to the Word of God. This is the words of the prophet. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. And that day, the lovely young women and strong young men will faint because of thirst. Now, the collapse that Amos is describing is the spiritual collapse of human beings who are literally hungry and starving for the wisdom and knowledge that's available in the Word of God, but they can find it nowhere. So thank God that he gives apostles, pastors, teachers to the church. They are meeting a fundamental human need. Remember the commission of Jesus to Peter. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. The apostles, to their great credit, won't let even a huge, potentially crippling, community-breaking problem distract them from their absolute obligation to proclaim the Word of God. But they also recognize that their obligation to the Word doesn't mean that they can just ignore it when members of their community are physically starving. Remember the description of the Jerusalem church in the first chapters of Acts. The members of the church are selling everything that they have giving it to the apostles, and then watching the proceeds go to, the, to just be distributed to the folks who have physical need. So there is nobody hungry. There is nobody who lacks clothing. Hence, the deacons. Notice that the deacons have many of the basic qualifications that mark the apostles, especially being filled with the Spirit and with wisdom. And these deacons are called to make sure that the church's religion is what the Apostle James would call pure and undefiled. If you were to look at James 1.27, you would see that he emphasizes care for the poor, especially orphans and widows. Now, we live in a time right now where we're used to dividing our world and our communities into some unhelpful binaries like physical and spiritual. And it might be tempting to read Acts chapter 6 and impose that binary onto the division of ministry that we find with the apostles and with the deacons. But I remind you again that for the deacons, it is the presence of the Holy Spirit that's the prerequisite for ministering even to people's physical needs. The apostles are not doing the spiritual work and the deacons the practical. The apostles and the deacons are all doing the spiritual work 
which is also equally practical and physical. Now, I also want to highlight a character in this narrative that it would be super easy to overlook, the widows. It's easy to focus on this story and read it as if it's the story of the heroes of the first Christian generation, Peter, Paul, Stephen, Barnabas, etc. These are the ones who are doing the work of ministry, right? But recognize that it's the widows who need food, who are every bit as much a part of the community as are the apostles and the deacons. The folks who do the feeding need the folks that they feed, and the folks who are fed need the folks who do the feeding. And remember that the widows in Jerusalem are very desperately needy, but at the same time, they stand to offer tremendous gifts to the church. And some of those gifts are the same gifts that you could expect from an apostle or a deacon. Luke, the author of Acts, also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And there we find one really important description of a widow that we should probably take as an idealized portrait for what's going on here in Acts. And I'm thinking of the prophetess Anna from the Nativity story. Remember that this woman lived with her husband for seven years, then he died, and what did she do with her remaining years? She did not buy a retirement home. She did not move to Boca. She moved into the temple where she spent every day in fasting and in prayer, day and night, day and night, for 80 years. And what's the result of all of this? Well, the result is that when Jesus is brought to the temple, when the Lord that she'd been waiting for all those years comes to the temple, there are thousands of people walking about their business, but she recognizes Jesus when he comes. And I want to submit that the ability to recognize Jesus in the church when he shows up today is an ability that we could all stand to see elevated in this congregation and in other congregations like it. So, apostles, deacons, widows, where does this leave us? It brings us to what I think is one of the great, great lessons of Acts chapter 6, which is that if the church is a community that we choose, we choose to belong to it. It's a community that doesn't really sell us better versions of ourselves. It doesn't say, I will take you and make you special. What the church offers is a community where my highest good and your highest good and the absolute unlocking of your human capital and your potential is only possible when we run low to the basic needs of our neighbors around us. We're not escaping the mundane. We're not escaping the boring. We're diving into it. If we're parents, we're running toward the dirty diapers. Not away. The church requires a profound commitment to meeting each other's most elemental needs because this is where the Spirit leads us and this is where the Spirit enacts the Spirit's work. And if you're looking for probably one pithy verse that I think captures the whole message of Acts 6, you can find it in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Human beings don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The church is the community where the Spirit of God empowers all of us to do the work of nourishing each other, both with the Word of God and with our daily bread. So where do we actually find opportunities? Here at High Point, all of us today, to go about meeting each other's basic needs, both for the Word of God and for our daily bread. It's very easy to attend a large church like this and to confuse our presence 
at a public speaking event on Sunday morning with investment in a local church community. Now, over the next month, you're going to hear an awful lot about opportunities where you can get involved in practical service here at High Point. You should be hearing testimonies every week about folks who are doing the work of the ministry in places as diverse as children's church and in maintenance keeping the grounds. But today, I want to suggest that probably for me, and convenient given my role, the best place that I've found at High Point to go about getting involved with and meeting each other's practical needs and focusing on the Word of God is in a small group. Now, could I see a show of hands? How many of you right now are actively involved in a High Point small group? It's a very good number. For those of you who didn't raise your hands, I want to make it clear that I'm not trying to shame you. Many of you have, uh, have lives and schedules right now that make that kind of involvement, if not deeply impractical, just really emotionally difficult. If you are parents and you have three children under the age of six, if you are working multiple jobs in addition to attending classes, I'm not looking sideways at you and wondering why you're not pulling your weight. You're welcome. But some of you who maybe have the time and the energy and the resources, I want to encourage you to consider joining. We have groups all over Metro Madison and really all over Dane County. So if you're not currently a part of a small group, ask yourself, why not? And if you do find yourself wanting to put into practice the sort of community caring ethos that we see in Acts chapter 6, take a first step with a small group. Now, others of you, those of you who raised your hands who are currently involved in a small group, I want to encourage some of you, think. Should you maybe be increasing your responsibility? Are you being prepared to lead? Membership in a small group over time stands to, along with the other disciplines of Christian life, make us more mature believers. And if there's one thing that's true about increasing maturity in Christ, it's that, as Hebrews 5 says, because of the time, you should be teachers already. So, don't look at the ministry of the Word and think of it as something that's only suitable for Mike, or for me, or for Nick, or for the elders who meet on Tuesday nights. As you grow in grace, you too are being equipped to be a teacher of the Word, and a small group leader would be a great way to take a first step into your Christian maturity. But at the same time, I don't want to lose sight of all of us in this room who for whatever reason, find ourselves needing more than we currently have the opportunity to give. And we live in a culture that absolutely, indisputably stigmatizes the need to receive help. It makes it incredibly difficult for those of us when we do find ourselves over the barrel to reach out and say, I need help with rent. My car broke down. My kids need a babysitter so I can go to work. The, the basic practical things that make our life function but Jesus is clear. In the church, there's no shame about poverty. Blessed are you, the poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And I really think that the longer we're in the church, you're going to run into this truth. At some point, all of us are going to be the widows from Acts chapter 6. And I know this because that was me in the last three months. Uh, I want to take another moment here to say thank you to all of you at High Point. When we left Australia... It's incredibly expensive to ship your possessions across the Pacific Ocean. That's probably not a surprise to all of you. 
But what we didn't think to do was to put our hands up and say to the elders, to the search committee, to the other pastors, please help us because we're going to arrive in Madison with nothing. But thank God for people like Mike who said, hang on a second, Devin and Jory and their kids are going to arrive here with nothing. And so they got their heads together and they said, why don't we ask them just to register for some things that they're going to need? So while we were negotiating 500 other details that come with a you know, trans-Pacific move, we put together some registries. Not thinking too much about them, thinking, yeah, you know, maybe some people can buy us one or another thing. What we didn't expect was what was going to happen when we actually arrived. And we got to the house that we're renting. And for the next six weeks, three times a day, FedEx, UPS, Amazon <laughs> showed up unloading box upon box upon box upon box onto our porch. Those guys hated us so much. <laughs> and of these multiple registries, I mean, I think we registered for more things upon returning from Australia than we probably did when we registered for our wedding presents. You all bought out the entire registry. There was not one thing left. Never in a million years did it occur to me, one, to ask, and two, that once I was asked to do it, you guys would extend your generosity that way to meet my immediate physical practical need. So, sometimes in this church, you might find yourself an apostle teaching the word. Sometimes you might find yourself doing the work of a deacon, meeting somebody else's physical needs, to which I say, thank God. But when you find yourself a widow, when you find yourself in need, do not be ashamed to put your hand up and say, I need help. Any of you right, right here today who are in material need should be no more ashamed of your material need than a decamillionaire should be ashamed to attend the adult Christian education manuscript study because she recognizes that the teachers there may have some insights into the Word of God that she wouldn't have come up with on her own. This is the nature of the community. The Spirit is at work in us so that we don't live by bread alone, but yes, by bread. And we also don't live by word alone. We need them both. And we need each other to get access to them. So, what I want to encourage you all to do is to imitate apostles, deacons, and widows as you go forth today. Step up to teach the word. This is, again, I'll say it, if you're in a small group community, and you've been there for a number of years, and you have a sense of how things work, we need more small group leaders. Consider, should you put your hand up? Ask the people around you. Ask your current small group leader. Would it be a good idea for me to try this? For others of you who are in the small groups, many of you do this every week. Some of you don't. But all of us could stand to do a better job of it. Throughout the week, be on the look for the material needs in our community, both within High Point and immediately adjacent to it. And then when you come together, consider what can we do, all of us, together to meet that material need. Sometimes love is spelled R-E-N-T. And in a community like this one, where we all choose to come together, where most of us, but not all of us, live on the west side of Madison, where most of us, but not all of us, can afford to drive our own car here, it can be really, really difficult to be the people in need. So don't be afraid.
Let's take a moment to pray, and then I'm going to pass it back to Nicole. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you that you feed and you nourish us and that you restore and sustain our souls. Thank you for all the members of this community where you are at work, where you are enlivening us by the Spirit, and where you are sending us out in love to look for the mundane, the humble, the simple brokennesses that you want to restore by your Spirit and make right. So we ask that you do it even more. Because at the heart of the community is the Spirit who loves the church. Help us to return that love to you and to our neighbors around us. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.